this morning from Luke 18. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the gospel of Christ. Father, we simply pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. In Christ's name we pray. This morning I'm going to go where maybe no man has gone before, at least I have never gone this way before, and that is two weeks in a row, back-to-back sermons, opening with an illustration from Flannery O'Connor. Um, I just can't help myself this morning. Maybe I was uh, rekindled in my love and interest in her last week through the story of the turkey, Um, or maybe Flannery O'Connor and Jesus are just so similar when they tell stories. Uh, Of course, the parables are stories that Jesus told, um, earthly stories illustrating deeper spiritual meaning, and Flannery O'Connor was pretty good at that too with her southern wit. One of my favorite, for sure, maybe my favorite, Flannery O'Connor story is called Revelation. Revelation takes place in a small doctor's waiting room. It centers around one character named Mrs. Turpin. And the way that Flannery begins the story, she talks about the doctor's waiting room being small anyway, but when Mrs. Turpin was there, it felt even smaller because the fullness of her presence really took up so much space. And the story is a short one, but not, not a short, short story, and so I can't give you every detail, but let's follow the line of thought with Mrs. Turpin as she sits in the waiting room and the thoughts she has to herself about everyone else in the waiting room. One of the genius things about this story is we've all been there, right? We've all been in places, and even specifically doctors' waiting rooms, where we sit there and we don't maybe know anyone else there but we are surveying everybody there, right? Surveying on so many different levels of analysis and judgment. Uh, And that's what Mrs. Turpin is doing. And and she has seen all kinds of different people. And as she's seeing all kinds of different people speaking to herself about them, she is progressively feeling more and more elevated in her own existence. Uh, as she sees people that she refers to as white trash, and as she sees African-Americans that Flannery O'Connor does not refer to as African-Americans in her writing, nor does Mrs. Turpin refer to them as African-Americans. She refers to them in a more derogatory term, and she notices an awkward person and a very ugly girl at one point, and she's fixated on them in her mind, but then her thoughts cannot be contained simply to herself, So she starts to speak to another person or two uh, in the waiting room. Of course, not about the other people that are in the waiting room directly, but kind of about the other people that are in the waiting room 
indirectly. And this reaches a real crescendo at a moment where Miss Turpin, Mrs. Turpin, uh, says this to be exact. If it's one thing I am, she says, it's grateful. When I think of all I could have been besides myself and what all I got, a little of everything and a good disposition besides, I just feel like shouting, thank you, Jesus, for making everything the way it is. It could have been different. Right? She's just so thrilled with who she is. And she continues to do this. And you might remember me mentioning the ugly girl uh, who was in the waiting room with what Flannery O'Connor describes as blue acne all over her face. Uh, apparently, though you don't know this at the moment, is getting increasingly fed up with Mrs. Turpin's disposition and just her very existence that all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the ugly girl who was reading a book takes the book she was reading and hurls it across the room and hits Mrs. Turpin right in the forehead. She doesn't know what to think. She's taken aback. She can hardly catch her breath. She's flabbergasted. And everybody else in the room is just kind of frozen, like, what in the world? And then Mrs. Turpin looks the girl in the eye after she can catch her breath and says, what do you have to say to me? And this is what the girl said. I want to get it exactly right, even though it's a short sentence. Go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. (laughs) This is just Flannery O'Connor, right? Like, this is what she does. Well, as you can imagine, Mrs. Turpin cannot believe that this ugly, blue acne girl has just thrown a book at her forehead and told her to go back to hell where she came from and called her an old warthog, where they cart the girl off that usually you can imagine this waiting room is in quite a tizzy. And once they kind of get their things back together, Mrs. Turpin and her husband Claude head back home to the farm. But this phrase, go back to hell, where you came from, you old warthog, is seared in her mind and in her heart. She goes back and has some normal interactions with some of those African-Americans I was mentioning earlier that work on her farm. And she has other interactions with other people and somewhat business as usual, including going back to feed the hogs that exist on their property. And she goes back to feed the hogs that exist on her property and she's rehearsing in her mind what the girl said to her. And almost at this point, wondering as if what the girl said to her was a revelation about something. But it's hard for her to contemplate that that revelation might actually be something that's true. So she kind of goes on and continues to do what she's doing. And then O'Connor writes that as time goes on a little bit more and as the sun starts to set, Mrs. Turpin cannot get out of her mind. And she starts to recount all the good things that she's done and how good of a person she is. That how could this be true of me? And then I got to read. Then like a monumental statue coming to life, she bent her head slowly and gazed as if through the very heart of mystery down into the pig parlor at the hogs. A visionary light settled into her eyes. She saw the streak as vast Swinging as a vast swinging bridge extended upward from the earth through the field of living fire. Upon it, a vast horde of souls were tumbling toward heaven. 
There were whole companies of white trash clean for the first time in their lives and bands of black people, but she doesn't say people, in white robes and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs and bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those like herself and Claude had always had a little bit of everything. The given wit and the given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe the hogs closer. They were marching, or the horde closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity. Accountable as they were, and had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces, even their virtues were being burned away. She lowered her hands and gripped the rail of the hog pen, her eyes small but fixed unblinkingly on what lay ahead. In a moment, the vision faded, but she remained where she was. We all need a revelation. Because as humans, no matter where you come from, no matter what color of skin you have, no matter what your bank account says, there's a little bit, if not a lot, of Mrs. Turpin in all of us. We are judgmental people. We build ourselves up by putting others down. And we, this morning, desperately need a revelation of truth. And the good news is that God gives us one in Luke 18. And here's the revelation. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Period. Here's the revelation. Here's the point of Luke 18. God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. So we've got to unpack this and look at what it means to expose pride in our life and to embrace humility. But before we do that, lest we get this wrong, this concept and this idea of God opposing the proud and giving grace to the humble is not merely proverbial wisdom. It is not merely something to go well with us in society because that's not actually the point of the parable. The point of the parable and the revelation where God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, the point of the parable is this. The humble receive salvation and the proud receive damnation. Do you understand the distinction? It's not just that we're called to be humble people because it makes society better. It's not just that humility works, though it does. The point of the parable is much deeper than that. If we want to understand and embrace salvation, there's only one way, through humility. If we want to truly be justified in our existence as human beings, which we all do, and our lives prove it, Every moment of every day, we are longing to be right. If we really want to understand justification, we've got to understand that justification happens through humility. And specifically, humble faith that puts our life in Christ's life. So this is a parable that gives us a revelation. The revelation is God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble but it's not simply a good moral lesson. It's a lesson of life and death. It's a lesson of salvation and justification. Let's look in a little more detail here 
as it is important for us to consider these characters, this Pharisee and this publican or a tax collector, under the big idea that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So let's expose pride in this man in the story first, which is a lot more fun to do than exposing pride in ourselves, which we will get to as well. It's important for us to understand the setting here, and some of you would be familiar with this passage. This is arguably one of the most famous parables there is. And so two men, we know, were going up to the temple to pray. What they were going to do is to be engaged in public worship. So prayers of atonement were offered twice a day in first century Judaism in the temple. They were offered at dawn and at 3 p.m., and these were not individualistic activities. And so that's what's important to remember in this setting. This is public worship where these two men are praying. Okay, so like priests were engaged in activities. There were other liturgical elements going on, and there were also opportunities for people to pray individual prayers. But lest we not think that these are two people in a monastery or something on their own, individually praying with no one else around. And that's an important fact to remember. This was public temple worship that these two individuals were engaged in. Let's look at the Pharisee first. The Pharisees, bottom line, were just highly respected, very connected, and very religious people. Um, We have become accustomed in our day and time to basically throwing the Pharisees under the bus left and right because we see how harsh Jesus was with them. And there's no denying how harsh Jesus was with the very religious. He was much more harsh with the very religious than he was with the very irreligious. In fact, it's hardly a time you can find in the New Testament where Jesus shows harshness or even a certain edge with those who are irreligious. But Jesus seems to very much have a penchant and an ax to grind with the very religious. And as a result of that, we just think, oh, Pharisees. But what we've got to understand, and I've said this before, the way we see Pharisees today is not how Pharisees were seen in first century Judaism. They were highly respected. They were very religious. And to be honest, from a behavioral standpoint, like they were good guys. They really weren't adulterers. They really weren't thieves. They really were religious. And that's important for us to remember. But let's start to unpack this Pharisee's prayer. The text tells us that he was standing by himself, presumably to not be defiled through the uncleanliness of others that existed around him. We also know that he prays aloud. And remember that this is in public worship. And so a lot of people heard what he said which was no surprise or mistake to him. I think, presumably, that he liked that other people would hear that because his prayer was laced with unsolicited ethical advice, right? In his prayer was embedded a sermon or a time of teaching for all to hear, which reminds me, when I was a youth minister in St. Louis during graduate school, I served with a youth group there, and one of the things that was fascinating about this church as a whole And in particular, our youth group is that there were tons of seekers and non-believers around all the time. And so it really was an amazing uh, manifestation of the gospel. You were watching people come to faith in Christ for the first time regularly, which is a side note. It's pretty invigorating for a Christian's faith to watch someone who's not supposed to believe the gospel believe the gospel, right? Uh, And one of those students' name was Dan, and I had a lot of interaction. There's a lot of stories about Dan. This probably will not be the last 
you heard, you will hear of Dan, but at one point I'm praying in a small group that Dan, this new Christian, is in, and I finish praying, and, and he's not being cynical or, or um, you know, rude by asking me this. At the end of his prayer, I really think he was just genuinely curious, and this is where the Midwest is pretty beautiful because most of the time people just say what they think. He said, hey, when you were just praying, were you like trying to teach us something or were you like talking to God? And I said, uh, you know, I think I was probably trying to teach you something. <laughs> uh, and it was just so sobering and so beautiful for him. To, but that's what this Pharisee was doing. And by the way, there's many behaviors that manifest in my life that are very much like this Pharisee, and we'll talk more about those. But that's what this guy was doing. He was, try, he was giving some unsolicited ethical lesson. He wasn't trying to pray. All the prayers in first century Judaism were characterized by one of three things, if not all these three things, at once. Confession, thanks, and petition. Okay? Confession, thanks, and petition. Do you see any of those elements in the Pharisee's prayer? No. None of the elements were there. What do we see that is characteristic in this Pharisee's prayer, which is also synonymous and characteristic of what it means to be a prideful people? And by the way, if immediately you're thinking, someone else, I really wish someone else was hearing this, then you already don't get it. Right? Like if somehow you've already excused yourself from this reality, like you're off to a bad start. Like, you're missing it already. So what was characteristic of his prayer and presumably his life? He was obsessed with himself. He bowed down and focused on the mirror of other people's opinion. And that was the core of his existence. He was a very self-sufficient person. We see the personal pronoun I in there five times in this short little prayer. And then furthermore, he elaborates upon his fasting, which in their day and time, religiously speaking, there was a requirement for fasting once a year on the Day of Atonement. But Pharisees fasted 12 times a year because they fasted the two days before and the two days after all the major festivals. And there were three of them, right? And so he fasted more than he was supposed to, like lots more. And in the Old Testament, the tithe was supposed to be on grain, oil, and wine. But this Pharisee gives and tithes on all that he does, right? So he's very self-sufficient. He's also self-delusional. Like he doesn't understand who he is or what it would be like. It's hard when you are not self-aware. Joseph Conrad is a great novelist, and in his book, Lord Jim has this fantastic quote, it is my belief that no man ever understands quite his own artful dodges to escape the grim shadow of self-knowledge. It is my belief that no man ever understands quite his own artful dodges to escape from the grim shadow of self-knowledge. In many ways, that's what our lives are characterized by. Artful dodges escaping the grim shadow of self-knowledge. And that's hard. This man's prayer is also laced with self-justification. His justification essentially is encompassed not only in his acts of righteousness, but also 
in his acts of righteousness compared to or relative to other people's acts of unrighteousness. Nothing like making you feel better when you come up against extortioners, people that are unjust adulterers, or even people like this tax collector, keeping in mind he's praying this out loud. Ultimately, what we see in this man's prayer is that he was just simply self-righteous. His righteousness was derived by his right actions, which might sound plausible and okay, but the biblical definition of righteousness has nothing to do with your right actions. The biblical definition of righteousness has everything to do with a right relationship. And it's with Jesus. And get this, it's with His right actions. You see, we actually are, oddly enough, though you would have to explain what you mean by this, justified by works. You're just not justified by your works, and thank God. Because if we're honest, would you want to be justified by your works? Made right by your works? The truth is, we are justified by works. We're justified by the works of Christ. Not by our righteousness, but by His righteousness. You see, Pharisees were moralists, and they were legalists. And I know a lot of times today, the term legalism has gained some popularity, which all in all is probably a decent thing, except it's oftentimes misunderstood and wrongly defined. I cannot exhaust in every detail what legalism is, but I'll give you two distinctions of what legalism is to help us in our understanding. Legalism, historically speaking, was taking the law and then putting fences around it. So like, just like this example with the fasting. They really were called to fast once a year, but the Pharisees, that wasn't good enough for them. So they took that law and they put fences around and put more restrictions on the law. It's not that the law in of itself is wrong. That's not legalistic. And that's where we get a little bit under, don't, don't give me law. Don't be legalistic with me. You're like, well, you don't understand legalism. Legalism is taking the law and then putting, adding to it, putting fences around it. And then legalism, secondly, is not only taking the law and putting fences around it, but legalism is also taking the law as a means of merit. That's what's problem with it. Problematic with legalism is taking the law and putting fences around it that God doesn't put around it. And then it's also taking the law as a means of meriting God's favor. Before we move on to see the example here of embracing humility with the tax collector, let's do a little bit of application. So there's a popular show, I think it's on NBC. Um, many people that like it simply called This Is Us, right? And the title's pretty descriptive because the people that watch it basically resonate with the title, like, why do we like watching it? Because this is us, right? Like, you're, you're like watching these people on TV and this family, good and bad and, you know, redemptive and sad, whatever, but like, this is us. Well, if we're not having that experience in this parable at this point, we're missing it. Like, we've got to, if we don't hear the story of Mrs. Turpin, and we don't think this is us? If we don't look at this Pharisee and we don't think this is us, then we're like some former colleagues of mine when I was an undergrad at Ole Miss, my campus minister with RUF. His name was Jeffrey Lancaster. One of the things that Jeffrey used to talk about 
and not to pick on sorority girls here because it wasn't just them, but they said it in such a poetic way that I think he liked to mention it a lot, that it was not uncommon, for example, for him to have a tri-delt come into his office and essentially use it as a time of working through things, which that is a commendable thing to do, and even as a time of confession. But oftentimes he talks about when these girls would come in, they would essentially confess something that they, would done, they had done, and then the next thing they would say is, that is just so not me. And Jeffrey, in his quick wit, and just kind of laid back saying, say, actually, here's the truth. It is so you. It really is you. And that's true for us, right? Like, it's easy for us to think about, oh, I've done this thing. I thought this way. I did this. But that's just like so not me. And the truth is, it is just so us. So speaking of this is us, I made a little quick list entitled, You Might Be a Pharisee If, before we move on to embracing humility. You might be a Pharisee if you don't need others because you're self-sufficient. You might be a Pharisee if you look down on others, you know, like hypothetically, the way that other people parent. Like too strict or too rigid, right? You might be a Pharisee if you look down on others' home decor, right? Like that's always something good to build your righteousness on. You might look down on others' political views or the car they drive or the job they have. And by the way, this works both ways. I've been in churches before where there were people that looked down on the people that had the nice cars. And I've also been in churches before, of course, where there are people that look down on people that had the bad cars. And there's always this kind of like self-righteousness in play, right? Like, Uptight people are self-righteous about people that are too laid back. And people that are too laid back are uptight and self-righteous about people that are uptight. You might be a Pharisee if you look down on others. You might be a Pharisee if you think and talk in us-them language a lot. Or more specifically... If every time you use the first person pronoun, you talk about good things, like I, and every time you use the second or third person, you talk about bad things. I do this, they do that. Sure, telltale sign, if that's your pronoun usage, that you're a Pharisee. Another constant or consistent Pharisaical phrase, I don't understand why they can't just fill in the blank. Sounds like a Pharisee to me. Another sign that we might be Pharisees or prideful, we're unapproachable. Like, for example, no one ever calls you out on looking down on others. Like, if no one's called you out, guess what? You're unapproachable. And if you're unapproachable, guess what? You're prideful. And if you're prideful, guess what? You're in peril. Another sign that you might be a Pharisee, You're defensive. No, I'm not. Another sign, you're angry. Another sign, you might be a Pharisee. You take what may or may not be a good idea and you make it a biblical mandate. I never knew the Bible spoke directly to schooling. I I missed that verse. I didn't know it was mandated. 
I miss the verse where the Bible mandates things about dating. I've, I've, never, I've actually never seen the word dating in the Bible. What may or may not be a good idea, we make biblical. What about politics? Lots in Scripture about the political process as it exists today in the West, particularly America, right? Lot, lots in Scripture about Republicans and Democrats. Why would we take what may or may not be good ideas and make them biblical mandates? Because we're Pharisees. That's why. Lastly, kind of a litmus test in and of itself in the midst of this larger litmus test. When you hear of someone else's wrongdoing, I don't know, when you read about a prominent company in our town these days in the paper, you know, good old white-collar crime, when you read about that, when you hear about someone being unfaithful maritally, when you see someone not discipline their kids when they ought to, or when you see someone's kids form a substance addiction or walk outside of the faith, here's a simple question. What is your response? What is your response to white-collar crime? What is your response to adultery? If it's something like, how in the world could they do that? Then you're probably a Pharisee. But if it's something more like, oh my God, by the grace of God, that's not me. Or it has been me. Then you probably understand humility, which means you probably understand the gospel. Who's to say, by the way, that given the right set of circumstances, you couldn't do anything? I think we've got to accept that. I mean, sure, you saw this one time in your situation where there was an opportunity maybe in your big business practice that you easily could have, you know, written the number down differently and pocketed 500 bucks. That's great that you didn't do it. But who's to say you wouldn't have done it if you could have pocketed $500,000? Maybe we just hadn't had the circumstances. Right? I'd like to think that we would deny those things, but how dare we say, how in the world could they do that? That's what Pharisees do. That's what prideful people do, which is not only a bad way to live in society, it's like I said in the beginning. It's a way to escape justification and salvation, and that's a big deal. So that's exposing pride and intended to be a little more lengthy. Let's look here at what it looks like to embrace humility. This tax collector, also referred to as a publican, was a good old-fashioned crook. He was just despised. He was rotten. He committed lots of white-collar crime. He got written about in the paper. He was the kind of people, the kind of person, where, a per where people would say, how in the world could they do that? And here's the truth. What he did was really wrong. Like, he stole money from people. But here's the difference. He knew it. He knew it so much that when he went to the temple, he stood by himself too, but not because everybody else was unclean, but because he was so vastly and poignantly aware of his uncleanliness that he was ashamed to be around anybody else. His prayer was actually really short. We'll talk about the content of it in a second. But he gives another action in his prayer. He beats his chest. It was not uncommon in the temple when people would come before through confession where they would cross their arms over their chest. But no one ever beat their chest, particularly first century 
scholars in Judaism say no man would ever beat their chest. And in fact, the only other example in Scripture of people beating their chest is when? At the cross. People beat their chest when Christ is on the cross. And therefore, this publican's prayer is translated, God have mercy on me, a sinner. There's two different Greek words for mercy. One, elio, is the simple term for mercy. That's not the word that is used in this passage. The word that is used in this passage is haliskamai, which means make atonement. You don't have to know Greek to know one is weightier than the other. He's not simply saying, God have mercy. What he's saying is, God make atonement for my sin. Do we feel the weightiness of our sin in the way he did? What he's doing for us here is modeling what real repentance is. You see, repentance is deep. And repentance is exhaustive. And repentance, until Christ comes again, is unending. Speaking of the Reformation, one of the tenets of the Reformation is this. Repentance is a way of life. Period. It goes something like this. There is a problem. I am the problem. By the way, that's good marital advice. There is a problem. I am the problem. Repentance, you see, is threefold. We've got to repent of the acts of unrighteousness. We kind of get that to some degree. We also have to repent of the lack of doing that which is righteous. Sometimes we pray that, right? We confess that what we have done and what we have left undone. But then there's another leg to the stool of repentance. It's confessing and repenting of acts of unrighteousness. It's confessing and repenting of the ways which we have not done that which is righteous. But then it's lastly repenting of our self-righteousness. Maybe doing the right things for the wrong reasons. For like self-justification, for example. You see, this publican here reverses the Pharisee's self-obsession, and we presumably see that this man is obsessed with Christ, not himself. We see that this man sees his sufficiency in Christ. We see that this man sees his justification is in Christ, and that this man's righteousness is in Christ. Can you imagine how liberating that would be? What if you as a parent really thought and saw your goal was not to be sufficient, but to rest on the sufficiency of Christ? How might that change the way we parent? You see, humility is powerful. And I'll start to move towards a close with this. Jim Collins, who's a business consultant out of Stanford, uh, undergrad in Stanford Business, has written uh, a lot of great books, Good to Great, um, among them, that was a seminal work that he did in the beginning. And in Good to Great, he talks about companies, what takes companies from just being good to really being great. And he studied it actually during the downturn in the economy. And so there were some real distinguishing factors of companies that continued to thrive and even be profitable in the midst of the recession um, around 08 and 09. You know what the number one characteristic of companies that were great, not just simply good, they had level five leaders. And guess what the number one characteristic of a level five leader in a company that was great, not just simply good? Humility. You see, humility not only leads us to salvation, 
But humility is a way of life with other men. Humility leads us to vertical peace, but humility also leads us to horizontal peace. C.S. Lewis understood it when he says this, to get near one who is humble even for a moment is like a drink of cold water to a man in the desert. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed cheerful, an intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He goes on to say, you see, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just not thinking about yourself at all. Dwight Moody, in the vein of humility not only taking us to God in a saving, justifying way, but also humility being transformative for a community and for a world. And it's my prayer that resurrection would be known as a humble community that exists to seek to love God and to love others. Dwight Moody was a great evangelist in Chicago, hence Moody Bible College and things like that. In fact, they say that Dwight Moody, when he walked the streets of Chicago in the 1900s, was simply known as the evangelist. He was kind of like the Billy Graham of his day. And Dwight Moody's son, in a book, uh, talks about what it was like growing up being the son of a preacher. Things that keep me up at night, having kids that are my kids. Uh, right, because, you know, what is true about preachers is the same thing that's true about y'all, except preachers have to stand up and at times, you know, speak in ways as if they might not be true, and it's a perilous profession. Um, lots of occupational hazards, and so Moody's son talks about growing up in a home like that, and he, he talks about that uh, his salvation and his conversion experience actually had nothing to do with his dad being a great preacher, starting a Bible college, being an evangelist, or anything like that, though he was exposed to all those things growing up, but he said he actually came to faith in Christ through an interesting common experience one time in their home. His son had a friend over, and his dad, Dwight Moody, uh, unjustly rebuked his son in front of his friend and sent him to his room, sent his friend home, and his dad was just dead wrong uh, about what had happened. And so Moody's son went into his bedroom, and it wasn't long later that Dwight Moody realized his error just that occurred to him. And so he went into his room, and his son, who's telling the story, acted like he was asleep because he didn't want to see his dad. He was so mad at his dad, so embarrassed at his dad's behavior. And so his dad tried to shake him. He was awake but didn't act like he was. And then he said his dad, Dwight Moody, got down on his knees next to his bed and prayed and asked for God's forgiveness, that he would have mercy on him a sinner, and he closed in prayer, and Dwight Moody's son said, that's what made me put my faith in Christ. Let me close in prayer. Father, we...